Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, August 23rd, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Very happy that you are here. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and we are beginning a brand new broadcast week here together on the show, where our website, our online home, is GuyBensonShow.com. Many ways to listen live there. You can go through Fox Nation as well. There's the app, ways to stream, our great affiliates, many, many choices most of which are right there at GuyBensonShow.com. And, of course, there's the podcast, free of charge every day, the entire show. That's on demand after the show ends. Also available at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And our numbers really continue to grow. And we are very grateful to all of you for that. On today's edition, the Monday show here, let's bring you the lineup. Dr. Nicole Sapphire will join us later this hour. The FDA has officially given full approval to the Pfizer COVID vaccine, and we're expecting to see the same of Moderna in the coming weeks. That's a significant development that might perhaps persuade or coax some fence sitters off the fence. It's no longer a so-called experimental vaccine or authorized only for emergency use, it is fully authorized, fully approved. And I think that also means that a lot of employers now might start shoving people off the fence because now that it's cleared and fully approved by the FDA, I think you're going to start to see more vaccine requirements in various industries, in companies, government entities, the military, etc. It's coming. So Dr. Sapphire will be here with her analysis coming up in just a little while. In our next hour, Britt Hume will be here. He's been watching everything happening, unfolding here in Washington, D.C. and across the world in Afghanistan. He has some thoughts on foreign policy and the president, the president's messaging, the president's comportment. And I'm eager to chat with Britt in our next hour. We will also check in in our middle hour with Congressman Mike Rogers, Republican of Alabama. He is the ranking Republican on the Armed Services Committee in the House. They're getting briefed on this stuff all the time. What is his message for the American people? What is his assessment of the president and the policy? We will ask him when he's here. In our final hour, just after 5 o'clock Eastern time, our happy hour, We welcome back our friend, Janice Dean. We actually have some weather to talk about with her, with the tropical storm Henri that was in 
sort of the northeast area. We weren't sure which direction it would head. That was making headlines over the weekend. Looks like we probably avoided the worst of it. There's also some flooding from some tough weather down in Tennessee. We will talk to Janice about all of that. And then we will shift our attention together to New York, where today Governor Andrew Cuomo is serving his very last day in that capacity. Tomorrow he is gone. And Janice, I think, is a big part of that, and we will talk to her about it as we are literally hours away from the end of Andrew Cuomo's reign in New York State. And you better believe I'm excited to talk to Janice about that. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Let's bring you stats. The case count in the United States of known coronavirus cases, all time, COVID-19, 37.7 million. And the actual number, with undiagnosed cases before we had testing, etc., is much higher. The death toll is now 628,285. That is an enormous number of Americans who have died. You may remember all those many months ago during the Trump administration, that day that Fauci and Burks, the two doctors, came in with their PowerPoint presentation, and they projected that it's possible that what was the number? 200, 250,000 Americans might die from COVID, and it was an extremely sobering day in the briefing room, and people were sort of in disbelief at that number. Well, we're at 628,000 and counting from a virus where we still don't have the exact answers on how it started or where it came from, and I think that there's a government over in Beijing hoping that we never get those answers. The Dow right now is up 264 points. This is up the road in New York. Currently trading at 35,384. We will monitor that as we always do. There are a few things that I want to play for you, some sound bites as we get going here. It was a very eventful weekend. Thousands of people were evacuated out of Afghanistan, Americans and Afghan allies. That's good news. There has been progress. Not enough progress. There is still a lot of extremely worrisome situations and developments on the ground. And the U.S. is still kind of just at the mercy in some ways of this deal with the Taliban. And the Biden administration has not yet just unleashed the power of our team, our military, to go get our people and get them to safety. The questions about strategy, tactics, planning, all of it remain pretty withering, I would say. For example, Richard Engel from NBC News tweeted this over the weekend, quote, an airman involved in the evacuation told me the U.S., quote, put the cart before the horse. He asked why we didn't pull out vulnerable people before pulling out combat troops when it was stable and easy. I replied, that's a basic and obvious question. And I flashed back to an AP report from June, which I read to you last week, about how there were all sorts of people desperately urging the Biden administration to get on the evacuation planning and to start carrying it out in a proactive, purposeful manner much sooner. And they were rebuffed. Quote, the Biden administration has come under increased pressure from lawmakers, veterans, and others to evacuate thousands of Afghans from the country 
And the story continued. This was back in June. Despite unusual bipartisan support in Congress, the administration hasn't publicly gone on record in support of an evacuation. And a lot of people are paying the price for that right now. The Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who was just like the president, just weeks ago saying that what we're seeing now, the whole country overrun, Kabul having fallen, the U.S. Embassy gone, abandoned, wouldn't happen. That was their assurance. Not months ago, not years ago, a few weeks ago. The State Department has been an absolute mess in all of this. There was an American who's been on the ground in Kabul who did an interview with ABC News showing that there were blank American visas being sent out into Kabul by the State Department. And he said this is going to be a problem because they're blank. People can copy these or just hand them out. And who knows who will have them to try to get out. This is going to create a vetting problem. If this is tr- I mean, if this is true... And there's no indication that I've seen that this guy is lying or making it up. And this aired on ABC News. You have to wonder whose idea that was. I am very much in favor of getting the Afghans who helped us out of there and bringing them here. We owe it to them. We've made promises to them. They've put their necks and their families' necks on the line for us. That should mean something. But the process of vetting is going to get a lot harder if you've got a bunch of U.S. visas floating around because of yet another boneheaded move by the State Department. So Secretary Blinken was on Fox News Sunday. And Chris Wallace asked him a pretty brutal question, although completely fair. He was running through, Wallace was, a few of the things that Biden has said versus reality and showing that the claims and the assertions of the president are simply incongruous with reality. They don't align. He's wrong. He's confused. He's lying. Whatever it is, it's not true. So Wallace played some sound bites. He had some pull quotes. He made a pretty bulletproof case that Biden is out there saying demonstrably false things on multiple fronts involving Afghanistan. And then he ended up asking a a pretty, as I say, point blank question about the president. I want you to hear not just the question from Wallace, but the answer from Blinken cut six. Mr. Secretary, does the president not know what's going on? This is an incredibly emotional time uh, for for many of us. and including allies and partners who've been shoulder to shoulder with us in Afghanistan for 20 years uh, at high cost to themselves as well as to us. They stood with us after 9-11, invoked Article 5 of NATO for the first time, an attack on one is an attack on all, and we've been there together, believe the country. Sir, respectfully, look, I'm not not questioning whether or not the allies have a right to complain. I'm not questioning whether or not al-Qaeda has a presence. The president said al-Qaeda is gone. It's not gone. The president said he's not heard any criticism from the allies, there's been a lot of criticism from the allies. Words matter, and the words of the president matter most. Chris, all I can tell you is what, what I've heard. I've heard across the board deep appreciation and thanks from allies and partners for everything that we've done to get, bring our allies and partners out of harm's way. Okay, so this is spin that they had determined ahead of time for the Sunday shows Blinken was going to talk about this stuff. 
And what struck me about that exchange was Wallace, after running through a bunch of the evidence, says, Mr. Secretary, does the president not know what's going on? And Blinken's answer was, this is an incredibly emotional time for many of us, and then launches into his pre-prepared, pre-packaged talking points. He didn't answer the question. The question is, does the president know what the hell is happening? I was chatting with someone over the weekend. Is he lying? Are they withholding information from him? Or is he having trouble retaining and synthesizing information? I don't know, but none of those options, it seems to me it's one of those, none of them inspire confidence at all. And when a news anchor, our colleague, asks the Secretary of State, does the president not know what's happening, and we get sort of this deflection, well, it's an emotional time. I think probably what happened was Blinken was so ready to read off of the script that he had in his mind that he didn't even listen to the question itself. And as a result, it really looked like he was trying to avoid answering it. There's also a possibility that he heard the question quite well and decided, I don't want to go there. But on one issue after another, the president has said one thing and reality has said something else. Right, The administration said that they plan, and the president said, we've planned for every contingency ahead of this withdrawal. And I think that, quite frankly, nobody believes that. It's obvious that they did not contingency plan on seemingly much of anything at all, let alone every contingency. He said that this rapid collapse of the country and the capital was unforeseen. Who could have seen this? Then we've heard from intelligence sources and leaked cables that have suggested otherwise, that they were warned. People in the State Department saying we've got to get these rescue missions and evacuations started no later than the end of July, uh, early August. What else did the president say? He said al-Qaeda's gone from Afghanistan. We pointed out last week, we played the soundbite, Jennifer Griffin confronted them at the Pentagon. That's not true. Blinken had to, in the Chris Wallace interview, after a lot of ducking and bobbing and weaving, he had to admit, okay, yes, yes, al-Qaeda is not gone from Afghanistan. In fact, there's a top al-Qaeda terrorist operative who has reportedly been put in charge of security in Kabul by the Taliban, one of the most wanted terrorists in the world. And the president said, oh, no, they're gone from the country. Untrue. As we noted last week, he said, our alliances, our credibility, no problem here. In fact, just the opposite. He said, quote, the exact opposite is true. And then Blinken sort of backed him up with this lame, oh, all we're hearing is just gratitude and wonderful things. Well, the rest of us are seeing the quotes, hearing them with our own ears from the House of, or from the floor, rather, of the House of Commons. Brutal assessments in the House of Lords. eye-popping quotes out of Germany and elsewhere in Europe. And the president says, oh no, it's, it's the exact opposite of any of that. There is a report in the Washington Examiner that reportedly a U.S. general told his British counterpart maybe they should stop doing so many rescue missions of their citizens because they're making us look bad. By contrast, because we've done so few rescue missions, maybe one or two that we've at least heard reported about so far. 
And then, of course, the line about Americans being able to get to the airport if they wanted to, when that was obviously not true at all. Over the weekend, the State Department put out an advisory saying, do not try to get to the airport right now. The security situation is too dangerous. Don't even attempt to get to the airport, which was a 180. And there were widespread reports of people being denied access, people even Americans being beaten by the Taliban. The president also said, oh, yeah, I I don't recall anyone ever advising me that I should keep 2,500 troops on the ground in Afghanistan. Many people saying, of course, he was briefed on that. Of course, that was recommended. It was widely reported. And the White House has almost confirmed it through the National Security Advisor at this point. One thing after another. So it's a reasonable question to ask, as Chris Wallace did. Does the president not know what's going on? And the answer from Blinken was not encouraging. Much more to get to on all of this. We are just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Monday. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. This just in from the White House, an exchange between our colleague Peter Ducey and Jen Psaki, circle back the press secretary. This is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Cup 31, listen. Does the president have a sense that most of the criticism is not of leaving Afghanistan? It's the way that he has ordered it to happen by pulling the troops before getting these Americans who are now stranded. Does he have a sense of that? First of all, I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. We are committed to bringing Americans who want to come home home. We are in touch with them via phone, via text, via email, via any way that we can possibly reach Americans to get them home if they want to return home. There are no Americans stranded is the White House's official position on what's happening in Afghanistan. Right I'm now. just calling you out for saying that we are stranding Americans in Afghanistan when I said, when we have been very clear that we are not leaving Americans who want to return home. We are going to bring them home. And I think that's important for the American public to hear and understand. But they are stranded now. That's his point. But she's calling him out for saying something that's obviously true right now. And there's many of them stranded because there was no good plan to get them out long ago, which there should have been. This is the contingency planning that they boast about that obviously didn't actually transpire. Trey Yinkst, another one of our colleagues, he's on the ground in Afghanistan now. He tweets in response to this, Americans are stranded in Afghanistan. Denying this fact is ignoring... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. In reality. Oh, they may not be stranded later. That's the White House objection now. Calling out Peter Ducey for just stating a fact. It's delusional. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. GuyBensonShow.com We are back. Thank you for listening. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. With me now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author. Her latest book is Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. And, Doctor, hello. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Guy. Always a pleasure. So, a big day. A lot of people have been waiting for this for a long time. I've sort of grumbled for some time now that perhaps this is taking far too long, but at last... It is here, at least on the Pfizer vaccine, the FDA has gotten around to fully approving this vaccine for overall use. It's no longer authorized on an emergency basis. The term experimental can no longer be applied to it. I think that was sort of a misleading term to begin with. But now it is a fully approved vaccine by the FDA What are your thoughts on the implications of this approval? Let's start there. And maybe for the audience, can you explain what sort of rigor goes into a decision like this? Well, Guy, great news for those 16 and over. FDA has granted full uh, FDA approval, which is an important step forward in reaching people who have been somewhat hesitant because it was under the EUA. There are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pages of data that had to be submitted by Pfizer to the FDA. And this was from at least 20,000 patients who they have tracked for over six months. These are very important steps. And as we know, over 99% of all reactions to vaccines happen within about six to eight weeks following the vaccine administration. So for people who say, well, what about five years from now? What about 10 years from now? Well, we do have nearly a century's worth of data on other vaccines, and it does seem that you will see the majority, far majority, of any sort of adverse effects in that six to eight weeks following administration. So with a lot of data, they were able to get it submitted, and the FDA expedited looking through it. They brought it to the front of the list. doesn't mean they didn't go through all those pages. It just means that it went to the front of the list of all the other applications, and they were given approval. And Moderna is expected to be right around the corner in a matter of weeks, correct? Yeah, I'm, you know, if, whether it's a couple weeks or a month, I'm not sure. But I can tell you Pfizer and Moderna are very similar, just a little bit different on their dosings. But if Pfizer was granted approval, I see no reason why Moderna wouldn't happen very soon after. Right. And when you look at those two, I was checking the numbers earlier today. Moderna, it's roughly 142 million doses administered in the United States alone. Pfizer is the top dog on that metric, more than 202 million doses administered in the United States. And so I just find it interesting, of course, when 
the experts go through this at the FDA with a fine-tooth comb, and they're tracking tens of thousands of people over the course of many months and really keeping a close eye on side effects and everything like that. That is a huge element of what they do as the approval process moves forward, and in this case was completed with that announcement coming today. It's now a fully approved vaccine. The Pfizer one is, to me, again, just speaking as a layperson doctor, it feels to me, and I should say, as a layperson, comma, doctor, <laughs> I'm not a layperson doctor, that's not a thing, <laughs> uh, but as a layperson, Dr. Sapphire, to me, the even bigger piece of evidence here, the wider evidence, to me, what is especially encouraging, if someone is maybe still not 100% sure, they were waiting for this to come through, they were waiting for the experimental moniker to go away and for the FDA to really green light this as a you know a fully approved vaccine it's not tens of thousands of people it's not tens of millions of doses it's hundreds of millions of doses that have been injected into Americans for months at this point and the results are extremely promising on efficacy and safety and i mean to me you couldn't have a bigger experiment, if you want to call it one, than we have right now. And the experiment has gone astoundingly well. That's sort of my takeaway. A hundred percent. And, you know, when we talk about those large numbers in the United States of hundreds of millions of doses, but it's not just the United States. There are hundreds of millions that have been administered across the globe. I mean, you want to say experiment. I'm going to say a trial just because people hate the word experiment. Right. But this has been one of the most incredible uh, vaccine efforts of our of our history and the fact that these vaccines were able to be developed uh, manufactured administered approved so quickly and have such high safety and efficacy profiles continues to just be a massive success story now i will say though if you look at the data that differs between pfizer or not pfizer israel and the uk there's been a more uncoupling of hospitalizations and death from cases in the uk than israel and my guess from that is that Israel had a truncated um, time frame between their first and second dose, whereas the UK spaced it out a little bit more. I'm going to be curious to hear if the FDA or Pfizer has any recommendations at any point of delaying that first and second dose from for anyone who at this point is still going out to get vaccinated. Well, yeah, because it does it... seem yeah a, a larger lag between there may provide more long-term immunity, but that's why we're speaking of boosters, why Israel's already boostering, the United States is starting to boostering, because having that lag between doses is really good for priming the immune system. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a really interesting side note to all of this, because the UK, they made a decision, and it wasn't really necessarily a stroke of genius on their part. They were dealing with a shortage of supply. So they decided, okay, we're going to do first doses first, and we want to get as many first doses out there as we possibly can, even if that requires us to delay the administration of second doses, because we want to get some protection into as many people as possible. Whereas the Israelis, they had their entire stockpile, they had this thing down to a science, you know, literally, so they had people getting their first shot and then following the recommendation, what is it, three weeks, and then in when the second shot... And it does look, at least anecdotally, because there seems to be a little bit more protection from Moderna. Their gap in Moderna was a month, so one extra week. In the U.K., the gap was, in some cases, because of this 
sequencing issue that they had. It was a, a gap of months in between the two doses. And it Six seems like that, yeah, that may have actually worked better. And so that's something where you can sort of learn from the past, but it's not a reflection on a safety issue or even really an efficacy issue. It's a sequencing issue. And if you're someone who hasn't gotten vaccinated yet and you now see that Pfizer is approved fully in the United States, maybe what you ought to think about now is let me go get my first dose of Pfizer and then talk to my doctor, ask about the UK versus Israeli example, and maybe wait a few months before I go and get my second shot. Uh, you know, and then if people who got vaccinated very, very early on in the process who might be vulnerable or elderly, they can talk to their doctors right now about boosters. And I'm starting to talk to people who have boosters scheduled already, older people, immunocompromised people. I mean, this is now actively happening, Right. It absolutely is. I mean, I can tell you, I know many people at this point who have already gone and gotten their boosters. And for those who are immunosuppressed, immunocompromised, or in the elderly who received their first doses over six months ago, yeah, it's a good idea maybe to get the boosters. We're heading into the fall and winter months. Um, I wouldn't say for anyone to take this into their own hands. And certainly, if you haven't been vaccinated, I wouldn't want you to delay that second dose for a few months. Because we know that that second dose gives you much stronger immunity than that first dose. So we want you to be as protected as possible as soon as possible. But even if you extend that three-week lag to maybe four weeks or five weeks or six weeks, you know, that may be the right thing for you as long as you can continue to avoid certain high-risk behaviors to lessen your risk of exposure to the virus in the interim. We saw a new study just today, or last night, I guess I first started people uh, seeing people tweeting about it and talking about it. We had discussed this on Air Doctor actually shortly before I got my breakthrough case of COVID a few weeks ago. And as the audience knows, as you know, because you were great in helping me, it was a very mild case, extremely short in duration. There was data that you and I were walking through that showed, yes, breakthrough cases are much less severe. They are much more mild. They are, in some cases, you know, shorter in duration. You were, you know, potentially contagious for a significantly shorter period of time. There was that CDC guidance that helped inform the mask coming back on where you saw people sort of freaking out because the, the word went out that the viral load among infected breakthrough individuals versus infected non-vaccinated people that the viral load was the same but there's a new study out that does seem to show that once again even if you do have that breakthrough case of covid the viral load you might be contagious for a short period of time but it is a much shorter period of time and things are a lot easier for you and less dangerous for the people around you and that seems to fly with and comport with a lot of what you've been talking about and other strands of evidence that you were advising me about weeks ago. All right. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I'm so happy to see the data confirming kind of what common sense um, tells me and exactly as though someone were listening in our conversations. Yes, the, the big thing that the, the CDC and all of their hyperbole Oh, it could be as contagious as the chicken pox, and you could have the same viral load if you're vaccinated than unvaccinated, and you can give it to other people. It's like, okay, yes, it's um, contagious. Uh, not nearly as lethal as chicken pox, but they left that part out. Um, but when it comes to the viral loads, yes, 
again, if you're just swabbing people, then it's possible to have the same viral load. But what this study is showing is that you're more likely to clear that virus much faster because you have immunity. That immunity is helping kick the virus's butt. That's what yep. it's supposed to do. And so, and you're also going to be less contagious because more of the virus in your nose is going to be dead because your body's fighting it off. So it, it's a little frustrating when they ha- say these things like, oh, the same viral load. Well, they're not actually looking at viable virus. They're just looking at viable or virus particles. And that's, that's frustrating because and, we need what's clinically significant and not just lab data. And it seemed, and you're right, what the CDC said, and you had Walensky out there and, and all the public health experts, you know, Fauci, they're repeating these things about breakthrough cases, and people were already nervous about the Delta variant, and it wasn't that every single thing that they were saying was false, but there was some context, as you point out, that may have been downplayed or excluded, and there were really good signs about breakthrough cases compared to cases among the unvaccinated that I think were extremely relevant to people's experience and to the risk factors at play here, to especially to people around others. And, I mean, you are sort of taking, and you should take, something of a victory lap here because you've been totally vindicated in what you were telling me. And it's and the study out of the Netherlands is, is really strong proof, basically, that you were right about this. And what's wild about it, just you know, from my own perspective, doctor, is that I literally lived through this and all the things that you were assuring me on the phone and in text, and I was not freaking out at all. I was pretty calm about the whole thing. But you were saying, look, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to stay mild. It's probably going to be shorter. Here are the reasons why I think that's going to be the case. And as you were just describing moments ago what the Netherlands study and other data is showing about you know, strength, duration, seriousness, a dead virus getting killed off more quickly, the body pouncing into action and kicking the virus's butt as you described it, I literally just lived through it. Literally exactly what this broad data is showing is explicitly, I'm an anecdote, right? I'm the anecdote that represents the data, right? Because data and anecdotes are not always the same. In fact, sometimes anecdotes completely fly in the face of data. That's where we get into trouble and make stupid decisions and can't assess risk properly. But sometimes anecdotes align with the data And it's, I don't know, I don't know if I want to call it cool, but it's kind of cool that what you are sharing with the audience, this really good news about vaccinated people who might get a breakthrough case, is perfectly exemplified by the experience that I had in my very mild case in my easy recovery. I mean, absolutely. And this entire pandemic has about, been about a series of anecdotes. And sometimes it works to our advantage and sometimes it's to our disadvantage. Um, but I can tell you right now, we need to get the word out about these breakthrough cases. You are not the only person who has reached out to me in the last couple of weeks who has a breakthrough case. And it is the exact same scenario over and over and over again, what I'm seeing. And so, yes, while we continue to talk about breakthrough cases and you see all over the headlines that you have full hospital systems um, across the Sun Belt, the big, big picture here is how well we are fighting off this Delta variant because of existing immunity throughout our country. Yep, and a lot of that is thanks to natural immunity and then, of course, the vaccines. And when you look at those hospitals filling up and tragically people dying, almost all of them 
are unvaccinated. On deaths, it's like virtually every single one of them are are unvaccinated at this point, which is why we've been encouraging the vaccines here on this show, not because you should listen to me, you know, a political analyst, but because you should listen to people like Dr. Nicole Sapphire and the entire Fox medical team that comes on this show every day. And here we have the full approval as of today from Pfizer. Moderna is going to come as well. The FDA saying for Pfizer for now, at least fully approved. And if you're still not sure, still thinking about it, hopefully this is a step that puts you in the direction down the path of scheduling that shot. Because, as I can attest, if you get exposed to this virus, you want to have some immunity to it. And the vaccines do a superb job of avoiding negative and severe outcomes, hospitalization and death from COVID-19. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, medical doctor, Fox News medical contributor. Her book is Panic Attack. Appreciate it, doctor. We'll talk soon. As always. Thanks, Guy. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's an incredible operation. Let me be clear. The evacuation of thousands of people from Cumboa is going to be hard and painful no matter when it started, when we began. Would have been true if we had started a month ago or a month from now. There is no way to evacuate this many people without pain and loss of heartbreaking images you see in television. It's just a fact. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was President Biden saying, look, it was going to be bad no matter what. And as I said last week, it was never going to be perfect. It was never probably going to be great or maybe even good, but it could have been so much better than this. And to pretend otherwise is insulting, and it's an obvious attempt to wriggle off the political hook and pretend like, oh, well, our hands were sort of tied. This was always going to be our fate. An advisor to Senator Tom Cotton tweets this, an American woman is stranded in Kabul all alone. When she tried to get to the airport, the Taliban beat her for the crime of traveling without a male escort. She has heard nothing from the State Department, only from freelance volunteers a world away. And yet the White House is trying to parse the definition of the word stranded, yelling at Peter Ducey for using that word. What would they say she is, this woman, getting beaten by the Taliban? A U.S. citizen. A modicum of planning could have avoided a lot of this disaster. And that is absolutely 100% on this president and this administration. They might extend the deadline. The Taliban is threatening. No, you can't do that. We are not done with this yet. And I pray that things improve. We all should. Brett Hume joins me after this on The Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. 
It's a brand new hour in a brand new week here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. The podcast is free and it's just blowing up. Thank you for making that happen. Our numbers continue to climb and that's because of you. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, our online home here. One-stop shop for everything Guy Benson Show related. And that's an easy one to remember. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes up 215 points today, closing at 35,335. Also a record close for the NASDAQ. With us now is Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. And Britt, it is great to have you back. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. I would like to get your reaction to an exchange that just happened a few minutes ago at the White House. We played it earlier in the hour, or in the previous hour, I should say, between our colleague Peter Ducey and Jen Psaki, the press secretary at the White House. It seems that after not disputing a certain word as recently as a few days ago at the Pentagon, the administration has decided that they do not like the word stranded to describe Americans who are stranded currently in Afghanistan. Here's how this went down at the White House uh, this afternoon, cut 31. Does the president have a sense that most of the criticism is not of leaving Afghanistan, it's the way that he has ordered it to happen, by pulling the troops before getting these Americans who are now stranded? Does he have a sense of that? First of all, I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. We are committed to bringing Americans who want to come home home. We are in touch with them via phone, via text, via email, via any way that we can possibly reach Americans to get them home if they want to return home. There are no Americans stranded is the White House's official position on what's happening in Afghanistan. Right I'm now. just calling you out for saying that we are stranding Americans in Afghanistan when I said, when we have been very clear that we are not leaving Americans who want to return home. We are going to bring them home. And I think that's important for the American public to hear and understand. Britt, she says it's irresponsible. She's indignant. It's irresponsible to use the word stranded. Well, I hope she turns out to be right, but so far she's wrong. And it's palpably true that there are a lot of Americans, not to mention our Afghan allies and those who worked and cooperated with us, who were stuck in Kabul, who can't get to the airport and therefore can't get out of the country. Not to mention what's going on around the rest of the country. So maybe in the fullness of time, which apparently is going to be just a few more days, all of this will be resolved and all these people will be out. I must say I have my doubts. Yeah, because we just got a report today from Senator Cotton's office saying that they are aware of an American woman in Kabul trying to get out. The State Department has not been in touch with her at all. She's dealing with freelance Americans just trying to figure out how to patch this you know, together. And she's been beaten in the streets by the Taliban because she's been in public without a male escort. And so if that's not stranded, I don't know if that word has any meaning. Well, here's it's also this guy, when you get down to it, you know, one, the one question that these American briefers and other officials are not really dealing with very effectively is the question of whether if we wanted to extend the deadline to get out of there, and it looks like, you know, there are thousands more who want to get out, and we only have a few days left under the deadline that we first set that the Taliban now says it will enforce. In other right. words, the Taliban have said if we want to extend the deadline, the answer will be no. So then what do we do? Um, if we're not, if everybody isn't out, then what do we do? And look, it, 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 being out means you get the military out. 
So our capacity to get people out will probably disappear ahead of that deadline, or you'd never be able to get all the military out. So, the, and, and it's all pretty clear to me what's happening, at least part of what's happening, which is this president does not want to see another American soldier killed or wounded in Afghanistan. And if Americans are stuck in there and and can't get to the to the airport, and the only way to get them out would be to send soldiers in to get them out, the way some other countries have done, he seems unprepared to do that. And I I, I mean I find that astonishing, but that seems to be where we are. I think it's important that you bring up this development with the Taliban, and we mentioned it in passing last hour. But there are apparently some discussions, and Biden has himself acknowledged this, some discussions about maybe taking more direct action, which they haven't been doing very much of at all. I guess there was one mission that we know of on, on a helicopter to a, to a hotel in Kabul, and also to try to extend the deadline. But if you have the Taliban saying the answer is no, there will be consequences if you are not completely gone by the 31st. I mean, we know already that some of the threats and, and rhetoric from the Biden administration are completely toothless and empty, right? Because in hollow, they've said, oh, if any harm comes to any American, we're going to act swiftly and overwhelmingly. And we have now many reports of Americans stranded getting beaten by the Taliban. We have not done anything, apparently, swiftly or otherwise, to deal with that. The question would become, should we trust the threats of the Taliban at this point, saying, no, it's, it's August 31st or bust or else? And it's just kind of staggering the extent to which they seem to be in control of what's happening, in control of our fate over there. Yes, and think of what what the anniversary of 9-11 will now come to mean. For a long time now, it was uh, a day we remembered when we were attacked, to which we retaliated effectively, to uh, a day which triggered our action in Afghanistan to blow up the sanctuaries that were being enjoyed there by al-Qaeda who attacked us on 9-11. Now, at least on paper, that country reverts back to the condition it was in when all of this started. Who will be whooping and hollering and celebrating on 9-11? It certainly will not be the people of the United States. It will be an even more solemn commemoration than we've, ever, than we've probably had since the early days after 9-11 itself. This is, this is something that great powers, and we certainly are a great power, and we certainly presume to want to continue to be a great power, simply cannot have. You cannot have a situation where some ragtag band of medieval uh, thugs has holding your people hostage in a city that you, know, you once walked around in freely a matter of weeks ago. This is an in, this is this is a kind of simply intolerable for a power like the United States to have this going on, and I think the public reaction to this is going to be very strong and very negative. Well, we saw new polling out yesterday. NBC News has some pretty dreadful news in their new poll for uh, President Biden. If I recall correctly, the number. In fact, I'll get it exactly for you. His approval rating on Afghanistan, the president's, is now twenty-five percent. CBS News asked the American people, has the way that this withdrawal, this withdrawal has taken place, has it gone well or badly or what have you? And the percentage you say it has gone badly is 74%. More than two-thirds of independents, oh, more than three-quarters of independents say it has gone badly because it so obviously has. And what we hear from the president and some of his defenders 
repeatedly now, Britt, it's like one of their talking points is no matter what we did, no matter how we did it, no matter when we did it, it was going to be very painful and sort of it is what it is. And I saw, I want to read you a tweet from Sean Parnell. He's a decorated military veteran. He's running for Senate as a Republican in Pennsylvania. He was challenged by someone saying, all right, what, what would your exit plan have been if you're so smart and Biden's so wrong? And he responds with this, right off the top of my head, begin the exfil in the winter, maintain intelligence and air power, evac, uh, evacuate civilians, starting with charities and NGOs, then evacuate civilians, our personnel, then evacuate vetted Afghans, transport high-value equipment, disable heavy arms, evacuate U.S. military, terminate the operation at Kabul airport, and finally transfer Bagram. That's off the top of his head, Britt, and we did none of those things. It is hard to explain, and my own thought about this is I see these these people like the Secretary of Defense Austin trying his best to to defend this or and to make the you know the best case for it um, there is no good case for this and you know I, I, someone is people have been clamoring for Austin and General Milley and others to be fired but it doesn't it's not clear to me that the president is paying any attention to these people anyway and and it's not clear that it would make any difference if they were fired. I think that is a fair point. And I actually saw, this is the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan was challenged about something over the weekend during one of the briefings. They said, well, why didn't you guys hang on to Bagram? At least until this was all over. When you could have had an airfield that's easily defended, it's a huge airfield, why didn't you do that? And they said, well, the president was advised by some military leaders that we shouldn't do it that way. And the reporter followed up saying, well, okay, but military leaders were also urging him to keep 2,500 troops in country and not to do this drawdown the way they're doing it at all. And Sullivan said, well, that's that's the decision of the president. And, you know, the president ultimately calls the shot. So when it comes to a uh, of course it is, of course, of course, he's right. Of course he's right, but I think it's interesting to say on one big decision that's going disastrously, well, that's not really the president's fault because that was the advisor's fault. And then when you point out that the advisors also recommended other things that the president ignored, well, that's fine because the president's the that ultimate call, decider. Yeah. Right, they're, they're sort of trying to have it both ways here. And at the top of the show, Britt, we played the soundbite from Fox News Sunday yesterday. Chris Wallace asked a very candid question of the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, after laying out a whole bunch of examples of Biden saying things that are not connected to actual reality on the ground. And Wallace asked, does the president not know what's actually happening? And Blinken didn't really answer the question. And when you look at all of those disconnects, that the canyon separating some of the president's rhetoric and the reality I've asked aloud, I asked at townhall.com today, is the president knowingly lying? Is he being not briefed on some of this stuff? Are they holding some of the bad news back from him? Or are they fully briefing him and he is not able to synthesize and retain that information and then make decisions and communicate about those decisions with the American people? It seems to me that one of those things or some combination of those things would have to be true, Britt, and I wonder what you make of it. I think both those things are true. 
Joe Biden has always, I've known him for decades since he first came to the Senate, and he's always had serious limitations, always has. He was a monumentally gaff-prone senator who, by sheer virtue of a genuinely affable personality, he's a very likable guy in person. You talk to him, he's, he's friendly and likable and seems to like people and so on. Um, he's always been likable. He's always gotten along in the in the in the in the sometimes clubby halls of the U.S. Senate, and managed to survive there. He was popular in Delaware, and you know, he didn't do any real harm. Um, but anybody who ever heard him speak for any length of time could tell that this guy this was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And you know he you know he could talk forever and was famous for it. But the, you, know, you never had the sense that he was terribly smart. And on top of that, now he's manifestly senile. And between those two things, this is a man with very, very severe limitations, who is well too old, in my opinion, to be the president of the United States. And we are reaping now the consequences of all of those in the Democratic Party who, in their desperation to head off Bernie Sanders and to get rid of Donald Trump, gave us this man, not to mention... Uh, whatever contribution was made by a number of, of Republican Trump haters who felt that no one could be worse than Trump, that Trump had, Trump had brought shame and dishonor to this country on a scale we'd never seen before, and that Biden would restore all that. Well, now look at it. It, it was, there's a lot of people with a lot to answer for because we have this man as president. I mean, it, it is hard. I was asked this question on Media Buzz yesterday. We were talking about President Trump, and he and some of his allies are out there saying, oh, this would have never happened on our watch. It would have never gone down this way. And I acknowledge there were elements of the deal with the Taliban and their negotiations with the Taliban, the release, the required release of a bunch of dangerous prisoners. Uh, you, can, you can throw some rocks and maybe connect on some of the criticisms of Trump's Afghanistan policy, even though he and Biden agreed on the overall proposition of withdrawal, when it comes to whether it's, you know, it's a counterfactual, you can't prove it or disprove it, whether Trump and his team would have done better in terms of the nuts and bolts of withdrawing in a smarter way, I don't know. But my answer ultimately, Britt, was you can only look at what is happening right now under President Biden, and it's hard to imagine it being done any worse by almost anyone. Last word well, to you, you Brett. Yeah, and, and I think the, you know one of the most obvious ways to look at this is there are two pieces to this. One is the decision to withdraw. Now, I happen to disagree with that, but let's just understand that the American public was for that and that the past two presidents have both been in favor of that. So that was, that was a done deal when Biden came to office. His job was to manage the execution of it. And this is what we got. This is a calamity, and he is clinging, I'm afraid, in the midst of this to the same impulses that gave rise to the decision to do it the way he did it, which was he didn't want any more American military casualties. That seems to be job one for him. And never mind that in, in pulling out in the reckless and hasty way that he did, um, he, he left behind countless Americans who are now, I have to say, being, are being evacuated to the extent they can be, and all these Afghans who are with us and support us. There is a matter of national honor here. It does matter. And, and you can bet that the propaganda victory for this for our adversaries around the world um, will be serious, and the attitudes of our allies toward us, allies whom we may well need again and soon, will be affected by this as well. Yeah. 
And as you have those thousands of American citizens and tens of thousands of American allies still stuck in a country where they desperately do not want to be anymore, the message from the White House seems to be, don't you dare call them stranded, uh, which is pretty wild, but that's the messaging that they landed on today. Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News, we always appreciate your insight and time, and we look forward to next time. Thank you, Guy. Brit Hume on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on the show. Coming up later, we will have Congressman Mike Rogers, Republican Alabama. He is the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee in the House. Also, Janice Dean on the last full day of Governor Andrew Cuomo's now truncated third term in office. And he apparently also announced he will not be seeking election because he technically could run again. So he's stepping aside and not running again. And we'll talk to Janice about that. One quick thing that I want to bring to you on the home front, and we will, of course, return to the Afghanistan story with Congressman Rogers coming up in the next segment. But we were following the trials and travails of the fleabag or runaway Texas Democrats, right, with their chartered plane flights and their maskless photos and their super spreader events. And in some cases, their European vacations, while they had all run away so valiantly for democracy or whatever to stop Jim Crow, a giant lie. Well, enough of those Democrats have now thrown in the towel that they've reached a quorum back in Austin. And the Dems who are still hanging on, the dead-enders are furious at their colleagues, but the new session is getting underway, and they will, in all likelihood, be passing the legislation on elections relatively soon in the state of Texas. So, hell of a job, Democrats. You crushed it, as usual. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Guy Benson. Welcome back. We are halfway through the show today. Appreciate you being here. I am Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. And with me now is Congressman Mike Rogers, Republican of Alabama. He is the ranking member, the lead Republican on the House Armed Services Committee. And Congressman, it's good to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you. Thanks. Well, as you are getting briefed about the situation in Afghanistan, which has just been so frustrating and depressing and horrifying for days now, The White House is telling us that there is significant progress being made, and it does sound like there are thousands of people getting out. There are also really serious obstacles and security concerns and strategic concerns that remain red hot in play. Based on everything that you know, Congressman, and that you have seen and heard in the last 24 hours, what is your assessment of the situation on the ground in Afghanistan right now? Well, it's a mess, and, and it's not going well, notwithstanding what the president says. And he has made a, a, a boneheaded policy decision that's caused uh, this circumstance that we're in. 
And what he needs to do is snap out of it and, and acknowledge that it was a mistake and give the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs a direct order to get our people out of there. And they know how to do it, and they can do it and get it done in, a, in an expeditious way. But he cannot make himself acknowledge that this, this was a mistake and it needs to be corrected. Uh, but no, we're, they are not being given their their uh, lead to go and, and clean this up. What would that look like exactly? Because we've seen the French, we've seen the Brits, a few other governments have gone proactively into Kabul and elsewhere in the country to rescue their people and bring them to safety and fly them out of Afghanistan. It seems like we are relying on a patchwork of plans, if you can call them plans, to get Americans out. Please come to the airport. That was stopped for a while over the weekend because the security situation had deteriorated so badly. There were at least one or two helicopter missions into Kabul where we brought people to the airport, U.S. citizens, one involving a hotel. That was pretty widely reported. There are uh, reports today, I believe it's the Washington Post that had it, that the ambassador from Qatar has been instrumental in personally escorting Americans and getting them into the airport. It seems like there are various ways that our people are trying to get out of there, but there are still thousands, it seems, who are stranded. Do you know, is there still an order in place that our military is not allowed to go and conduct these types of rescue missions that we've seen from other governments, or has that sort of gag order, if you will, has that stand down been lifted? No, it has. And that's my point, is that the president has to acknowledge uh, sooner or later, if he can snap out of his senility for just a moment, that this was a mistake and allow the military to, to, to do what they need to do. General Milley knows how to get our people out of there. They have, they have the ability. They just need to be told they can and get the State Department out of the way. The State Department has proven themselves to be nothing less than incompetent in this whole situation. They're the ones that need to be pushed aside and, to, and let the military do their thing. And the president is not giving that order. Why? I mean, it seems like the Taliban seems in some ways to be calling the shots. And the U.S. appears exactly. to have... You know, it's hands tied. The Biden administration saying, well, look, we really don't want to upset them. We don't want to rile them up. We don't want to violate our side of some bargain that we've struck. The Taliban reportedly today and yesterday saying there's no way you can extend this deadline. The withdrawal exit deadline, August 31st. You want to make it longer. There's reports that Biden's considering an extension. Taliban is saying no. It is distressing to me to see this terrorist organization basically pushing the United States government around and the United States government crafting policy in this very timid way based on what the Taliban may or may not do. And, of course, the backdrop, Congressman, is just a few weeks ago the president was saying, oh, it's a very low, extremely low likelihood. I think his direct quote was highly unlikely that the Taliban would be taking over the whole country. Kabul, they said, would be safe for quite a period of time. They had assured our allies, there are reports, promised our allies that Kabul would be secured. That is, of course, not the case. The Taliban has taken over, and now this position of incredible weakness from which we're operating is having real consequences. Yeah. Well, as you, as you know, Bob Gates said over a decade ago that, that Joe Biden's been wrong on every major foreign policy decision uh, that he's made. 
uh, over 40 years, and he's determined not to break that record, and that's what's happening here. But I want to—I want you just to think for a minute about the way you characterize the situation of us asking the Taliban to do anything. We should be telling the Taliban what they will and won't do. We're the United States of America. We're a superpower, and we, we, this president has allowed us to get into a circumstances a circumstance where we're having to ask barbaric butchers permission to do things. This is insane. He needs to allow our military to go in there and clean this mess up, and they can. And they won't have to ask the Taliban a damn thing. They'll tell them what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. This is just insane that we're in this circumstance. And I want you to know that this was not partisan. The Democrat members of the Armed Services Committee were as violently opposed to this decision as the Republican members. We tried to get the president not to follow through with this. Uh, he wouldn't listen to anybody, and he's still not listening to anybody. I don't know if he's capable. We're speaking with Mike Rogers, Republican congressman from Alabama, the ranking Republican on the House Armed Services Committee. We've seen this line from the president himself and some of his defenders in the media and the pundit class saying, look, it's messy. It's a 20 year long war. Getting the U.S. out was always going to be ugly. And you weren't really going to be able to prevent some of this stuff from happening. And there are some folks who seem to be almost like, thumping their chest saying, oh, yeah, well, what would these armchair generals have done differently? And, Congressman, I am by no means an expert, but I can think of at least three or four things that could have been decided very differently in terms of the timeline, in terms of the strategy. And it sounds as though, and there's widespread reporting on this, that the Biden administration was urged to do a number of different things and alter course and changed their approach weeks, even months ago, and they declined to do so. So I really find it not credible at all to say, oh, well, it was always going to be approximately like this. Yeah, and that's just a lie. It's, you know, the, the president, I, I hate to, to characterize anything he says that way, but this is this is just not a he's not telling the truth. And I know he's not telling the truth. We were advising him to do otherwise, and his military leadership advised him not to withdraw. He did an interview with George Stephanopoulos uh, a couple of days ago where he was asked, uh, did, your advi- did any of your advisors uh, caution you that this might happen and not to go forward with it? And he said no. And that is just a patent falsehood. I'm not going to disclose their names, but I know two of his senior military leaders that urged him not to do this. Uh, he's not listening to anybody, and, and that's what's got us in this circumstance. Uh, but the fact is, uh, we urged him at a minimum, if he was going to withdraw, to make it slower, get rid of this arbitrary deadline so that we could do it right. And secondly, keep a base. It didn't have to be Bagram. It could have kept another air base. But we have to have ISR. We have to remain focused on counterterrorism. And we had to have a base that in case that the terrorists were to reestablish a stronghold, that we could go back in. And he wouldn't listen to anybody on anything. He, he didn't, uh, didn't really keep Bagram. He didn't keep any base. And uh, so that's what got us in this circumstance. I, I, I lay the blame at this for this solely at Joe Biden's feet, and history is going to recognize that. I mean, the Bagram decision is one of the many fundamental head scratchers. And again, there are people who said we shouldn't withdraw. And, you know, the the cost of American lives had trickled down to zero combat deaths over the last year and a half. Why not have this residual force? It seems relatively stable, right? That was one side of the argument. That side lost. Once that side lost, he keeps trying to relitigate that. He keeps trying to go back to the decision that he made because he knows that public opinion is stronger with him on that. 
It's the actual next step, right? It is the execution of his policy decision that has been, I would say, completely indefensible and continues to be indefensible. And, Congressman, we haven't even talked about the enormous amount of weaponry and technology that has fallen into the hands of the Taliban, and God knows who they might give it to or sell it to. This is something I had read estimates that it was in the tens of millions of dollars, then hundreds of millions of dollars. I saw one story that said it could be up to a billion dollars worth of American equipment. I cannot imagine how you can say with a straight face, setting aside all the human costs here and the very scary things that are happening right now and may continue to happen, unfortunately, for quite some time, I can't understand how you can look at the American people into the camera and say, as they have, we plan for every contingency when you have hundreds of millions of dollars of aircraft, Humvees, weapons, drones now in the possession of the Taliban. Exactly. I mean, he didn't plan for any of this. He's, he's just, again, he's fabricating uh, things. Uh, but my situation now is that we've got to clean this up. And at some point, the president's got to snap out of this and give the order uh, to the Defense Department to go and, and fix this. And they can. Uh, and I hope that at that point in time, once we've got our American ally, our Americans, our friends out of there, that we can revisit this issue of at least keeping one base somewhere in Afghanistan. And keep in mind, we don't have to ask anybody's permission. We can tell the Taliban, we're going to keep this base. You mess with it, we're going to kill you. Otherwise, you go on about your business and, and, you know, if the people over there won't let the Taliban run the country, a lot of Americans would say, let them. But we still have to remember that that is a hotbed for terrorist activity, that region of the world, not just Afghanistan. And we have paid dearly to keep that suppressed. And we need to keep a base over there so we can maintain that suppression of terrorist activity. Um, And hopefully he'll snap out of this and, and, and be sensible because, again, this is a Democrat and Republican. We feel very strongly that we should not have just left completely. You know, and, uh, and the terrorist threat that, of course, metastasized in that country before 9-11, that's how we got 9-11. And to have that exactly. threat reconstitute because we did this in an expeditious way or a way that was not thought through apparently almost at all is something that many Americans are concerned about. Last question briefly, Congressman. You keep saying you hope he will snap out of this and change his mind and you know maybe allow, unleash our military to be able to go and actively get our people and perhaps push the deadline back. Do you have any indication that that is going to happen, or is that just a wish at this point? It's a wish at this point. I think sooner or later the Congress, Democrat and Republican, is going to force his hand if public opinion polls don't, don't do it before we do. Um, I'm hopeful this week that instead of talking about wasting $3.5 trillion on Green New Deal stuff, that we can talk about what the American public wants us to talk about, and that's how we clean this mess up in Afghanistan and force the president's hand. Alabama Republican Mike Rogers in the House of Representatives, the lead Republican on the Armed Services Committee in the lower chamber. Congressman, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. And the Guy Benson Show will resume after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. It is the Guy Benson Show. It is Monday. Thanks for listening. So we told you last week about this latest fake scandal in Florida 
where in this case it was the Associated Press that tried to manufacture a problem for Governor Ron DeSantis. It's just endless with the media and this guy. They come after him constantly, half-cocked, and he is very good at pushing back. And it helps him, of course, that their stories are garbage. I mean, Exhibit A was 60 Minutes and the so-called Publix scandal. We spent a lot of time on that. This latest iteration was Regeneron and the antibody treatments endorsed by the Biden White House, public health officials, even Democrats in Florida. DeSantis has been promoting them. These are for people in the early stages, newly infected with COVID, especially if you're unvaccinated. If you want to massively cut down your chances of going to the hospital or dying, this treatment, Regeneron, works. It works well. And the feds have paid for it, and DeSantis is saying, hey, we've got a big spike in Florida right now. Let's try to keep you out of the hospital. Come get your Regeneron at these various sites around the state because it's a therapy that is quite effective. And the AP said, well, look, there's this guy who donates to DeSantis politically who runs a hedge fund which has a small stake in this company. And the suggestion seemed to be the implication was impropriety, lack of ethics, pay-for-play, corruption. And we explained at length on the air last week. You can go back and listen to the podcast, or you can read my piece about this at townhall.com. We went into detail about how there was absolutely no scandal there. On any level, we used facts to debunk this. DeSantis's press secretary was going pretty hard after the reporter who wrote the story. To me, it was the headline and the opening few paragraphs that were the problem. Because once you read later in the piece, it basically cancels out the rationale for writing the piece in the first place. Right? They have a scandalous-seeming headline and beginning of the piece, which is all anyone usually reads, and then the details that vindicate him and completely take the sting out of the alleged scandal, they come later, or they're excluded completely. And DeSantis's press secretary was just blowing up on Twitter this reporter, because she had shared information with him prior to publication that deconstructed the premise of the framing of this piece, but they went forward with it anyway. And so she had said, among other things, you know, encouraging her supporters and DeSantis's supporters to come in and join the conversation. At one point, she said, drag him, talking about the Associated Press reporter. That's an online term. It's slang. It means, like, mock this person. It doesn't mean physical violence or anything close to it. There were apparently some threats that came in, because there are crazy people out there. And she denounced those unequivocally. She took down her tweet that said, drag him. She got suspended anyway, briefly from Twitter. We're going to have her on the program tomorrow. But that wasn't all. Even though she made very clear, threats are not okay, That's not what was intended. We are fighting back hard against a bogus false story with a clickbait headline. That's what they were doing. The CEO, incoming CEO at the Associated Press, wrote this public letter to Governor DeSantis demanding a cease and desist of the abusive or harassing behavior against journalists from his office. And DeSantis got this letter and responded with his own letter, which I posted. I obtained it earlier today. I posted it on Twitter. Here's part of what it says writing back to the AP CEO. Quote, I assumed your letter was to notify me that you were issuing a retraction of the partisan smear piece you published last week. Instead, you had the temerity to complain about the deserved blowback that your botched and discredited attempt to concoct a political narrative has received. 
This ploy will not work to divert attention from the fact that the Associated Press published a false narrative that will lead some to decline effective treatment for COVID infections. Later in the letter, DeSantis writes this, I stand by the work of my staff, who went out of their way to provide the AP with the factual information necessary to dispel the AP's preferred narrative. That their response was effective in exposing the AP's partisan agenda represented a valuable public service, as it reassured many that the Regeneron monoclonal treatment is effective. The AP's attempt to create a political narrative has backfired. You succeeded in publishing a misleading, clickbait headline about one of your political opponents, but at the expense of deterring individuals infected with COVID from seeking life-saving treatment, which will cost lives. Was it worth it? Sincerely, Ron DeSantis, governor. Blistering response to the Associated Press. Whining and playing the victim after publishing what they published, and DeSantis is having absolutely none of it. Bravo. I think that's exactly the right response. I'd love to know if the AP has a reply. Do they have an answer for him and those questions? I wouldn't hold your breath. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is upcoming. Janice Dean on the final full day of Governor Cuomo's tenure up in New York. She will join us with her reaction and thoughts straight ahead. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for the happy hour to start off a brand new week here on the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can listen live, many ways to do so. You can also catch the podcast, which many of you have been doing. The number is just really skyrocketing recently, and we are very grateful for that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. I'll just underscore that one-stop shop for everything related to the program. Also, this happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our partners, our friends. Their website is thelongdrink.com. You've got to try it. It is really, really good and refreshing. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. You can find out where it's sold near you, where you can order online, various ways to get the product, thelongdrink.com. Joining me now as we kick off the final hour is Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times best-selling author. Her most recent book is Make Your Own Sunshine. Janice, as always, good to have you back. Always nice to talk to you, my friend. Let's begin with the weather. There was Tropical Storm Henri, which was concerning, I think, some people in the Northeast over the weekend. What is the aftermath? How did that all end up going down? Well, listen, it doesn't take a tropical storm or even a named system uh, to bring tremendous amounts of rain and and devastation. I mean, that happened in Tennessee over the weekend, and they weren't even dealing with a tropical system. Uh, it was a, a stalled front 
that kind of brought all of this moisture into one area of Tennessee. And, yeah, and they've got several... bad flooding, right? Yes. And that wasn't even a tropical system. I mean, some of it is related, uh, but it wasn't a system on top of them. It was just a frontal boundary that was stalled. So my point is, it doesn't take these tropical entities to cause death and destruction, which is what happened in Tennessee over the weekend. Uh, but then we've got Henri, and of course, we were tracking that. It looked like it could have made a, a you know, a left curve right into New York City. Uh, Long Island was certainly in the crosshairs, and it ended up sort of you know, skirting the eastern tip of Long Island and then moving into Rhode Island and bringing, you know, heavy rainfall. I think some of the storm totals were over nine inches and then at least tropical storm force winds for several hours. It's still, you know, hanging out across the northeast, but it is weakening. We're still concerned with the flooding. We are going to get some breezy conditions and, you know, all along the coast, you're going to have some beach erosion and rough surf. Uh, But for the most part, that is over with. You know, you mentioned the surf. My parents have a house up in Cape Cod, and they were sending photos from the beach that they live near because of the surf, because of the rough surf that you just described from Henri. You had thrill seekers and surfers put on their bodysuits and race to the beach to catch the big waves. I guess that's how some people's brains operate. I am very much the opposite way, Janice. <laughs> I was like, nope, I don't yeah. want to go anywhere near that. Thank you, though. I'm I'm the same way, and I can give you warnings all day long, uh, but it's going to be, you know, your own responsibility and what you deem as safe. Yep. It sort of reminds me in some ways of the vaccine, and you can sort of encourage people to do the smart thing and the right thing mm-hmm. as you see it, but ultimately it comes down to personal choice and responsibility and, of course, in some cases, consequences, but we're just glad that... It seemed like some of the worst case scenarios that could have played out with Henri have not played out, which is a relief. But as you say, in some places, a lot of flooding and that story out of Tennessee, you've got multiple people dead now from the flooding in Tennessee. So our hearts go out to them. Uh, And this is why I think people rely so heavily on people like you, Janice, and your whole team of meteorologists at Fox to bring us the best information as it develops and what could have been scarier, a little bit less scary, but still some serious outcomes as we have discussed. Shifting to politics, let's talk about New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo is currently on his way out. Today is his last full day as governor of New York. He leaves tomorrow. He gave something of a farewell address And, of course, he could not resist the opportunity to try to spin things his way yet again with a bunch of denial and gaslighting. I want you to listen just to a few of the comments that he made earlier, Janice. Cut 32. There will be another time to talk about the truth and ethics of the recent situation involving me. But let me say now that when government politicizes allegations and the headlines condemn without facts, you undermine the justice system. And that doesn't serve women and it doesn't serve men or society. Of course, everyone has a right to come forward and we applaud their bravery and courage in doing so. But allegations must still be scrutinized and verified, whether made by a woman or a man that is our basic justice system. 
he's pretending as though the attorney general in his state, in his own administration from his own party, hadn't assigned a team to look into this very seriously, and that they didn't corroborate a number of these allegations against him from these women. And of course, he's not talking about the nursing home stuff and COVID deaths and data manipulation. He also claims that that is all a giant political hit job based on no facts. But I mean, this is sort of his go-to, right, is just to say, it's all not true. It's all so unfair. Due process. Look, he didn't have to resign. He chose to resign. And now on his way out the door, he's still sort of in denial trying to convince people that the reason he resigned and the facts that we know aren't really the truth. Right. But that his that's been his whole M.O. from the very beginning. And I think he's lied to himself so often that he really does think that's the truth. And as you mentioned, he, you know, touched upon the sexual harassment charges, which ultimately is what brought him down. But I thought it was interesting at the very end when he was talking about COVID and New York tough and how they did everything relied on science. I just had to laugh at my, you know, to myself thinking, putting 9,000 COVID positive patients into nursing homes was not science. Uh, and so here we go. I watched it. Uh, I kind of rolled my eyes through the whole thing. It was taped. Obviously uh, no one could take questions. But, you know, good riddance. That's all I have to say. Yeah, I think that good riddance is probably the right response. I just can't stand when people actively lie through every single step of a controversy or a scandal. And again, if he's really, truly of the belief that this was all a giant setup and the corroboration doesn't count and the vetting of the allegations doesn't matter... And, you know, it's a disservice to due process. And look, we've seen allegations abused. We saw the Brett Kavanaugh embarrassment, that whole circus, which I thought was really a disgraceful episode. There was no evidence there. There's much evidence here, but he's trying to, again, frame himself as sort of the target, right? Cloak himself in the language of victimhood and hope that people don't understand the underlying facts, not just about the sexual misconduct allegations and accusations, which have been deemed very serious and credible, again, by the attorney general's office in his state, but also, to your point, Janice, on the nursing home scandal. You cannot say that you rely on the science when you actively withheld data and manipulated data to cover up realities about your own failed policy. That is the crux of the scandal, not his initial decision, which was bad and lethal. Other governors made that same decision. And you can at least, and we've said this many times in our conversations, Janice, you could make the case where he could have come out and contrite and said, look, we made the wrong call. We weren't the only ones. We thought this was the right thing to do for these reasons. Obviously, in retrospect, we were wrong, and we will carry that with us for the rest of our lives. However... We're going to move forward with full transparency. If he had just done that, I don't know if we would have ever come to what we're about to see tomorrow, which is this guy leaving the governor's mansion in a U-Haul, right? But he insisted on this cover-up and this narrative and cooking the books and fixing the data for political reasons and enriching himself with a tale about his own excellence as a leader, 
and getting that book deal. I mean, he made these decisions, and they've all added up, and ultimately he's paying for it. I hope you're right. Listen, I want the investigations to continue. It's a wonderful day today that he is leaving the stage, but I really need those investigations to continue. I was on with Fox and Friends this morning with Assemblyman Ron Kim, who has been a partner of mine trying to get accountability and answers about the nursing homes. And he made a promise to me that he, as a lawmaker, is going to go to the new governor, uh, Kathy Hochul, and say, we need to continue these investigations, not only into the nursing homes, but the friends and family COVID tests and using state resources of this $5.1 million book deal and then giving blanket immunity to nursing homes right after that March 25th order. He gave me his word he was going to continue to press on with all of these messes that need to be cleaned up. And he's also going to try to persuade the administration to continue with the impeachment. And that would be a good day for me if the, if the impeachment went on and we got real answers with the investigations. Yeah, we've had some attorneys on the air, and I talked to one filling in for Kennedy recently. They think that he has at least civil liability that he has to worry about, if not criminal liability when it comes to exposure and the law. So... Again, this is not a situation that is over. It's probably why he's going down swinging, not just his ego, but he recognizes that there might be a battle moving forward on the legal front, still in the public opinion front. Now, that's a battle he's been losing badly, which is the reason he's heading out. He would not be leaving tomorrow if his hand were not forced. If the math were there for him in Albany, there's a 0% chance in my mind that he'd be gone. But the math is not there in Albany for all of these reasons, Janice. He's, he's leaving tomorrow, right? It's tomorrow morning? Yeah, midnight tonight, really, is when, I guess, technically she takes over. And I guess there'll be some images of him departing officially, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps in the early hours of the morning. And I do wonder, Janice, might that be, even though it's a Tuesday... And even though it's the morning, might that be an occasion for a little day drinking on your part? <laughs> now that you mentioned it, you know, I, I might have a drawer full of something special at work after my shift on Fox and Friends. And I don't know how much more time you have, but did you hear about the dog? The fact that, yeah, that was going to be my last. Yeah. What is this? Is he abandoning his dog? <laughs> it sounds like it. Captain. His dog that he's had for many years that you've seen pictures of, uh, you know, when the governor is in trouble, you see him walking his dog and, you know, hanging out with his dog near the pool. So apparently uh, the Times Union broke the story uh, that officials around him, I guess state police were the ones that tipped them off, saying that he was asking people around if someone if he could unload the dog on them. So he doesn't want the dog. Well, he doesn't deserve a dog. I read a statement from his press guy who's attacked you personally. It's just like this smear machine, this rich something. It's just like his whole job, yeah, is to just, you know, he's got this thing full of slime that he runs around shooting at people constantly on behalf of the governor. I guess he's going down with his guy, right? They're going down with the ship together. But he says it's just temporary. They're looking for a temporary home for the dog. Who knows? I, you know, I just, I hope the dog's okay. And they say, you know, politicians often have no friends. 
no true friends in their political sphere except for a dog. And I find it strangely fitting that in this moment, of all things, Andrew Cuomo would be giving up his dog. (laughs) You know what? I think it is a great article to finally sway public opinion. If, if If you don't see what kind of man this guy is by giving away man's best friend, then I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I mean, look, if this is just like I need a, a place for what's the dog captain to stay for a couple days or even a week, I mean, everyone understands that. That's dog sitting. That's not please take the dog. And if that's the case, <laughs> that's some pretty robust sociopathic vibes on top of the other sociopathic vibes that we've been talking about with this guy now for quite a long time. Janice Dean. We will not delve too far into what you've got sitting in your desk at Fox for tomorrow morning. But (laughs) cheers to you, ma'am. Cheers to you when that happens. You've earned it. I'll put it that way. Well, thank you. And I'm glad I'm not in the doghouse. (laughs) Janice Dean, well done. Senior meteorologist at Fox News. Her most recent book is Make Your Own Sunshine. And it'll be a sunny day regardless of the weather tomorrow in New York. Janice, thank you. You're welcome, Guy. Thank you, my friend. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. You may have seen this circulating on social media. It's video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi speaking at what appears to be a fundraising event, a luncheon of some sort, in Napa Valley, California, with a bunch of donors. And they're sitting there at these long tables, and they're eating, and she's talking, and the camera pans around. It's a lovely setting. They're in Napa. They're all sitting right next to each other, and... I did not see people wearing masks. Now, you might say, what's wrong with that? And my response is, really nothing. I'm sure almost all of them, if not every single one of them, is vaccinated. The staff is wearing masks as they serve and deliver food. But these people are almost certainly all vaccinated or close to fully vaccinated in every case. They are sitting outside, which is a very safe place to be with COVID, right? We're taking available data and we're saying, honestly, There's really not a problem with this, except there's also data that kids are not at high risk at all of bad outcomes from COVID. It's extremely, extremely rare that masking in schools probably makes very little difference at all. And there are some indications that it actually has negative effects. And yet I wonder if every single person at that event in Napa, if asked, would raise their hand and say, yes, your child has to spend eight hours a day wearing a mask in school even though they would say, but this is fine out here, what we're doing because of the data. Well, data should matter evenly across the board. And I think that's why some people are rankled by that video. And I have to say, I thought I recognized where they were. Christine, I sent you the video. You recognized it too. They were at Charles Krug, which is the winery where we got married, my husband and I, a couple of years ago. It's a beautiful setting. I'll give her that. Yes. So what I wanted to say was I saw this 
in the news. I literally thought, wow, it looks so pretty where she is. It looks exactly like where a guy got married. And I was going to ask you, but I thought you were going to make fun of me being like, oh, my God. It's just another place in, like, Napa, Christine. Like, nope. It doesn't mean that's nope, exactly that was where it. I got married. And that was it. Yeah, I sent it to Adam. He's like, oh, my gosh, I know that place. So I wanted to address this mini controversy for multiple reasons. With that, we will step aside. Come right back on the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the program, we welcome back our colleague, Britt Hume. Hadn't had him on the show for a few weeks. Glad to have him back in the fold. And he weighed in on President Biden, his response in Afghanistan, the planning or lack thereof, and much more. Pretty unsparing stuff from Britt Hume. Here's part of that exchange. I would like to get your reaction to an exchange that just happened a few minutes ago at the White House. We played it earlier in the hour, or in the previous hour, I should say, between our colleague Peter Ducey and Jen Psaki, the press secretary at the White House. It seems that after not disputing a certain word as recently as a few days ago at the Pentagon, the administration has decided that they do not like the word stranded to describe Americans who are stranded currently in Afghanistan. Here's how this went down at the White House uh, this afternoon, cut 31. Does the president have a sense that most of the criticism is not of leaving Afghanistan, it's the way that he has ordered it to happen, by pulling the troops before getting these Americans who are now stranded? Does he have a sense of that? First of all, I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. We are committed to bringing Americans who want to come home home. We are in touch with them via phone, via text, via email, via any way that we can possibly reach Americans to get them home if they want to return home. There are no Americans stranded is the White House's official position on what's happening in Afghanistan. Right I'm just calling you out for saying that we are stranding Americans in Afghanistan when I said when we have been very clear that we are not leaving Americans who want to return home. We are going to bring them home. And I think that's important for the American public to hear and understand. Britt, she says it's irresponsible. She's indignant. It's irresponsible to use the word stranded. Well, I hope she turns out to be right, but so far she's wrong. And it's palpably true that there are a lot of Americans, not to mention our Afghan allies and those who worked and cooperated with us, who were stuck in Kabul, who can't get to the airport and therefore can't get out of the country, not to mention what's going on around the rest of the country. So maybe in the fullness of time, which apparently is going to be just a few more days, all of this will be resolved and all these people will be out. I must say I have my doubts. Yeah, because we just got a report today from Senator Cotton's office saying that they are aware of an American woman in Kabul trying to get out. The State Department has not been in touch with her at all. She's dealing with freelance Americans just trying to figure out how to patch this you know, together, and she's been beaten in the streets by the Taliban because she's been in public without a male escort. And so if that's not stranded, I don't know if that word has any meaning. Well, here's it's also this guy, when you get down to it, 
you know, one the one question that these American briefers and other officials are not really dealing with very effectively is the question of whether if we wanted to extend the deadline to get out of there, and it looks like, you know, there are thousands more who want to get out, and we only have a few days left under the deadline that we first set that the Taliban now says it will enforce. In other right. words, the Taliban have said if we want to extend the deadline, the answer will be no. So then what do we do? Um, if we're not, if everybody isn't out, then what do we do? And look, being out means you get the military out. So our capacity to get people out will probably disappear ahead of that deadline, or you'd never be able to get all the military out. So, and, and it's all pretty clear to me what's happening, at least part of what's happening, which is this president does not want to see another American soldier killed or wounded in Afghanistan. And if Americans are stuck in there and and can't get to the to the airport, and the only way to get them out would be to send soldiers in to get them out, the way some other countries have done, he seems unprepared to do that. And I I, I mean I find that astonishing, but that seems to be where we are. My full interview with Britt Hume, our Fox News colleague, available online at guybensonshow.com. The podcast of the entire show is free every single day, no charge, on demand, and growing big time. Thanks to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app. You've got lots of options. We recommend GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back, the home stretch. Quiet Wyatt is back from his first-ever international trip in Italy. Sounded like he had an amazing time. Producer Christine who's always curious, has questions. We will get an after-action report from Quiet Wyatt right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. We've made it through this Monday. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Baer on the panel with former Congressman Trey Gowdy, and Harold Ford. That's tonight around 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time. Fox News Channel looking forward to that with Brett and company. So please tune in if you have the opportunity. Special report. Well, we have a very special report here, as a matter of fact, on the show. Quiet Wyatt, our colleague, our associate producer, who, by the way, will be returning soon to the Washington, D.C. area, which is where the show is based as we get ready to transition, at least partially, we think, Back in studio, and they've built a brand new, gorgeous studio at the D.C. Bureau. During COVID, they did a lot of construction and refurbishing and really just totally gutting the place. And the radio studio is just amazing. And we really look forward to talking more about that and bragging more about that in the days and weeks to come. But before he has begun the process of moving his life back down to D.C., Wyatt, we told you about this, finally decided to pull the trigger and go abroad for the first time ever. Never been out of the country. He and his brother hopped on a plane and flew over to Italy, where I, from afar, looked at his photos and perhaps was occasionally envious of what appeared to be a pretty spectacular trip. So, Wyatt, having now returned home, you're back in the USA, you had your first taste of international travel. Bottom line... How would you rank it? One out of ten. Oh, definitely a ten guy. It was it was absolutely amazing. It was just so 
I mean, I kept pinching myself being able to, to say I was somewhere else and, and always looking at a map and, and saying, oh, that would be cool to go there and, and go there. And to actually finally be somewhere out of the continental U.S. was just absolutely amazing. I feel like trying to put myself in your shoes, I would imagine that as you, the plane is racing down the runway at Newark to take off toward Italy, the excitement had to have been just totally off the charts. Like, it's really happening. Here we go. And then when you land in Rome, of course there's excitement, but also the nerves start to creep in just a little bit like, wow, this is a totally different experience. It's not something that I've been accustomed to in the past. How quickly were you able to get your bearings and realize, like, okay, this is going to be fine. We got this. See, and and I actually was not nervous, like, really at all. The only thing I was nervous about was the COVID restrictions and making sure we were okay getting on the plane and getting into the country through customs. That makes sense. But other than that, navigating the city of Rome, navigating down where we went to, to Naples, the train system is incredibly easy to understand, even for someone who's out of the country, uh, navigating the hotels. I only booked one hotel and the rest I booked as we went. So that was a little nerve wracking, not knowing where we, where we would be staying the night, the next night. But Overall, it was very easy, and as I said, I, I really wasn't nervous. I was kind of the whole point of the trip was to just go and just explore and have fun, and we did a whole lot of that. The food looked amazing. The photos you were taking us, I mean, did Italian food live up to all the hype and expectations? Oh, yes, yes. I, I have to say, though, but we had pasta, we had pizza, we had gelato, there was this lemonade thing that I kept seeing everywhere, which I love lemonade. So I had that a few times. There might have been alcohol in there. I'm not really sure. And then, of course, <laughs> cappuccinos or cap- cappuccinos, I believe. Yes. And I had that coffee. I mean, it was we had everything. But the pizza in Rome was not very great. It was, you know, to, I would say American standards. But when you go to Naples, which I believe is the birthplace of pizza, where they actually invented pizza, that was just off the charts. Christina and I had a bet about whether or not you, Quiet Wyatt, would avail yourself of the opportunity to have any Italian wine or cocktails while you were over there. Did you? Yes, I did, but not wine. I should have had wine because I feel like that's what you're supposed to do. But I had uh, something, other drink and, and all that. But I, I didn't have any wine, which I probably should have with my pasta. Yeah, I feel like a little red wine with your pasta would have been excellent. But they've got some good cocktails over there. So I did win that bet, by the way. So, Christine, it's a, it's another defeat no, for no, you. No. It's uh-huh. another defeat one-on-one here. But I know that you are curious about some things, and you are allegedly Italian, you know, which you, you always say that, but I, and sort of skeptical of it. Wyatt has beaten you to Italy. You've never been to Italy. Now, Wyatt has, which in some ways makes him more authentically Italian than you are because, to my knowledge, he doesn't order his pizza with pineapple on it from Domino's or whatever. So now that you perhaps may be envious, uh, frankly, or threatened almost by Wyatt and his Italian adventure, what are some of your curiosities that you want to direct at our friend who's now back? Well, one of the questions, which I I mean, I should have known better that Wyatt wasn't going to be able to properly answer this, but I don't, I don't know if this is a myth or truth, but to me, it sounds like a dream. 
that when you're in Italy and you're drinking the wine, especially the red wine, there's no such thing as a hangover. You could drink as much as you want because it's like such a pure wine. And to me, that just sounds like a dream. But now White has said he has not had any wine in Italy, and I'm just a little disappointed. So I guess we'll have to move on from that. Um, Wyatt, as as far as the pizza goes, now you said in Rome the pizza wasn't great. Um, was it because they did not offer the option of pineapple oh. or bacon on the pizza? <laughs> Do you think that would have made the difference? No, it was just not. I was not <laughs> impressed. And the pizza in, in Naples, the way that they do it is they, they make the pizza and then they're small, like individual size, and they fold it in half and then fold it again and then put it in a wrapper. And you eat it's it like, like a sandwich. sandwich. Yeah, and it's like it's not like a pizza in a box or something like that. You eat it in like in a sandwich, and I thought that was very creative. And the the crust of the pizza, uh, along with the the small amount of sauce and the very small amount of cheese, I think makes a really good combination. Where it's different here, where there's you know crust and then there's a lot of sauce and a lot of cheese and a lot of toppings. It's very minimalistic, very simplistic. Uh, you know the way they do pizza there. Wyatt, I think I saw photos of you at. The Trevi Fountain, if I'm not mistaken. I saw yes. you with some sea uh, in the background at the Mediterranean. I assume that was down in Naples. Were those your two destinations, Rome and Naples, or do you stop sort of in different places and cities along the way? Yeah, so we did Rome for the first two days, and we just did everything in Rome. It was incredibly hot, like incredibly hot. Yeah, and so that'll happen some, in August in Rome. We would do some sightseeing and then go back to the hotel and stay in the air conditioning and then go out for dinner and do stuff like that in Rome because it was just hot. And we didn't really do any of the museums because the lines were so long and the Colosseum. Like we just didn't want to wait in line when we could be going out sightseeing and seeing other things. But we saw the Vatican, the Colosseum, the Trevi Fountain. I mean, you name it in in Rome, we saw it. And Spanish then we had steps. Down Yep, and then we would head down to Naples, and Naples was kind of the gateway to all the uh, coastline of the Afami coast, of all the, the cities there. So we went to Sorrento one day, and they have some amazing restaurants, and that's where we went cliff jumping. Um, and we, we went to some rocky beach area, and we, we jumped off this very high cliff, which I didn't think I would ever do. But I saw a bunch of younger kids doing it, and I'm like, if they're doing it, I could do it. So I <laughs> said, once in a lifetime, YOLO did it and had a great time into the sea into the mediterranean sea and it is it was and that was on the amalfi the amalfi coast you said this is where you were cliff diving i did not have this i was not expecting you'd be doing something like that wyatt that's very exciting yes no and there's video i i I have video evidence i'll send to the group chat but it was uh (laughs) it was quite an experience uh so we did that one day and just relaxed uh over there and then we i did a single trip to capri that island, which is a beautiful island, which I think if I ever went back to Italy, which I hope to, I would go to the Amalfi Coast and all those cities because there's all different beach clubs, resorts. And I mean, it's it definitely beats out the Jersey Shore. <laughs> but um, I mean, that was just amazing, the, the Capri and all the stuff they have there and the beaches and the blue water and the boats that go by. And it, it was it was just amazing. Christine, one more question for you. Oh, just one more. Okay, two really quickly. Uh, Why is it true? Were these people um, without clothing on the beach in Europe? Did you see a lot of that? I, I did not. I, I couldn't. I couldn't say I, I saw that. No, there was the, people were fully clothed. 
Hmm. And okay. Also, uh, she sounds disappointed. Friends. Yeah, well, you know what they say about the European beaches. Um, did you make friends along the way? I can imagine by the time I got home, I'd be emailing and texting and telling everybody about my new friends. You know, over seas. Uh, any any uh, any friendships blossomed over there? No, not really. Kind of kind of kept to ourselves. Uh, most people didn't speak English. They would come up to you or even other tourists from a lot of people were vacationing from other European locations and they would come up and ask me directions like I knew where I was and I would just say English and they would just walk away. So I, I think that, uh, that that but also one thing I want to mention too is how much American culture is impacted over there. Like I went into one store, an H&M store and it's all American culture. I mean, you have all the, the, the sporting brands on T-shirts. You have everything. And it's all impacted by American culture, which I found very interesting. Did you have jet lag? Not really, because I'm, I'm able to sleep. And I just take a cappuccino, which was very good, because you know I love my coffee and was always ready to go every day. I, I, the time change didn't bother me. And being home now, it, 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 was, it was fun. It's also, just here's a pro tip. It's helpful to be 21. <laughs> As you get older, jet lag in some cases becomes a more and more of a thing. So now you've sort of got a taste for this. You've, got, you've been bitten by the international travel bug. Are you already starting to dream about your next trip, and do you have perhaps a top destination in mind yet? Oh, I'm definitely. I, I can't wait to – also another cool thing was to take your passport and have it stamped. I thought that was cool. I never even knew that they really did that still. I thought that was something of the past, but they still do that in customs. You get it stamped when you go and you get it stamped when you leave. So, yes, I can't wait to get my passport stamped again. And so I think the next location, because the first one I really wanted to go to was London, but the, the restrictions there are just insane right now with COVID. So once that cools down, I think that will be next location to go sometime soon. I strongly endorse that idea for a bunch of reasons, and we can always revisit that. Maybe send Christine with you, and she can horrify everyone with her horrifically bad British accent. And that could be a whole bit, actually, for the show. Maybe you could write off the trip, as a matter of fact, if it's on official business. We'll see how the bosses react to that. I, I have a hunch. They may not support it, but we'll, uh, we'll come back to that at some point. But, Wyatt, we're just thrilled that you had such a good time. It looked amazing. We're glad, of course, that you're back. But here's to many more exciting trips like that in the future. And welcome back to the USA. It's always, to me, most satisfying, as much as I love traveling overseas, when you are back home on U.S. soil, it is a great, great feeling every single time. And I'd imagine you felt that, too. Definitely, definitely. The best country in the world, the United States of America. Yes, we endorse that. Here on The Guy Benson Show, catch me tonight on Special Report with Brett Bayer. I'm on the panel. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place, it's The Guy Benson Show. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. 
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.